Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. If the Lord wills, I will finish chapter 8 today, and we will officially be one-third of the way through the book of Joshua. As we, um, as we enter into the holiday season, we must acknowledge that, uh, and I don't have to tell you this, that this is indeed the busiest time of the year. From presents to parties to pictures to recitals to meal prep, the next month can feel incredibly complex. And because of this complexity, it can often be quite discouraging. It can, it can be even more spiritually draining because we feel like this Christmas season can be a never-ending cycle of things that we must do in order to be a, a, good, a good Christian. I don't know if you feel that way. I felt that way at times. But if we're honest, this isn't just a holiday season problem. We are often in danger of making our walks with Christ incredibly more complex than they need to be. You see, in all reality, the Christian life, it isn't that complex. It's not. God calls us to daily repent. He calls us daily to rejoice. And He calls us to live in conformity to His Word. That's about it. And that is what I want us to consider this morning. My main point is this. The Lord uses His Word alone to bring true repentance and authentic rejoicing among His people. The Lord uses His Word alone to bring true repentance and authentic rejoicing among His people. Hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 8. I've got I've got five verses this morning, Joshua 8, verses 30 through 35. Please follow along as I read. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward... He read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. You might remember the last time that we were in Joshua a few weeks ago, we saw Joshua and the Israelites defeat the people of Ai after their sin was atoned for by the killing of Achan and Achan's family. We saw that when our sin is atoned for, 
we can stand confidently before God and in this world. And this is God's will for us. God's desire for us is is not to be afraid to approach Him, to walk around with our tail between our legs, or, or to sulk around about past sins that we've already repented of and brought to the Lord. Those of us in Christ, we can truly stand confident in our relationship with the Lord. This is a fact. And so, this sermon is a bit of a continuation of last sermon. And so, if this is true, how should Christians respond to the confidence that we have in the Lord? How should we respond? What should this God-given confidence produce within us? What should this God-given confidence cause our hearts to pursue? I believe this this passage of Scripture this morning, it gives us three responses for those who stand confidence in the forgiveness that only God offers. Three responses. Three responses to the forgiveness that only God offers and the confidence that comes with it. First, godly confidence produces repentance. Godly confidence produces repentance. See, if you're casually studying the book of of Joshua, this short little scene here at Mount Ebal might seem like an oddly placed story in in the midst of some amazing battles and some upcoming glorious moments of God's power. For instance, Mount Ebal, it was 20 miles away from their previous battle at Ai. In order to get there, they had to travel north deep, deep into, into Canaanite territory. If their mission was to militarily take over the promised land, this would actually seem like kind of, a, of a, an odd strategy of sorts. Think about it. Why, why would you just take over a, a million straight Israelites and, and march them straight through enemy, enemy territory just to get to Mount Ebal? See, there was nothing particularly special about Mount Ebal from a, from a military or strategic standpoint. Yet, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, you, you'll, you'll find that the Israelites did not find themselves at Mount Ebal on accident. They weren't there for military reasons. They were there to obey Yahweh. In fact, go ahead and, and, and write this in your Bible in the margins if it's not there already in Joshua 8, 30-35. This whole scene in these verses is about obedience to God's commands found in Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8. Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8. Now, now, now keep, your, keep your finger or, your, your, or mark this the spot in, in Joshua and, and turn to, to Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8. We're, we're going to kind of be flipping a little bit back and forth through these passages today because they coincide so, so well together. And if you're in Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8, you'll, you'll read this. Very, very similar to what we just read. Deuteronomy 27, 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now, what one of the primary purposes of the book of Deuteronomy in general was to inform the Israelites how they were to honor the Lord as they lived in the land that the Lord God was giving to them. It laid out various laws, customs, ceremonies, and, and, and a, just a general um, vision for godly living. And so toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord gave Moses these instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 27. These instructions were given so that as the Israelites entered into the land, they were reaffirming their covenant with the Lord God. And so this is the scene at the end of Joshua 8 as they fulfill the commandments given to them in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So we must ask, what exactly did God desire for his people to do as soon as they entered the land? Well, let's see how this unfolds in, in Joshua 8. First, we see in Joshua 8, 30 through 31, we see that Joshua built an altar of uncut stones to the Lord. Now, according to Deuteronomy 27, 5 through 6, these, these stones, they were to be pure. They, they, they were to be uncut. Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, it, it tells us that if stones were cut by human hands in these altars, then they would be profaned. These were to be, these were to be pure stones. And the purpose of this altar created by these uncut stones is it was for the purpose of, of worship. Specifically, this altar was for the purpose of making sacrifices to the Lord. And so you might notice in, in Joshua 8.31 that the first offering that the Israelites made, it was what? It was a burnt offering. Now, I, I think it's important in this context to understand what a burnt offering was. According to Leviticus 1 verse 4, burnt offerings were made to make atonement for the sins of the one bringing the sacrifice. When one brought a burnt offering, just like the name suggests, the whole sacrifice, it was completely consumed by fire. Or it was what? It was burnt. That's why they call it a burnt sacrifice. In Exodus 29, 18, it tells us that that such an offering, that a burnt sacrifice, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The Lord is pleased with such sacrifices. So we might ask why. Why? Why would such sacrifices please the Lord? Why would burnt offerings be a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord? Why would they be described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Is the Lord a fan of the smell of burnt animals? Does the Lord love his meat cooked well done? No, these, these are not the reasons. In fact, we should note this, that there was nothing 
about the aesthetic of the sacrifices that inherently pleased God. Nothing aesthetically in and of themselves pleased the Lord. How do we know? Well, in Isaiah 1.11, as the Lord is declaring his anger towards unfaithful Israel, he says this. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, now why, would, why would the Lord say this? Why would he feel this way? Is God's word contradicting itself? Was, were the Israelites using the, the wrong kind of animals? Is that why he didn't like the sacrifices in Isaiah chapter 1? No. The Israelites in Isaiah 1, they were making sacrifices, not with the wrong animals, but with the wrong hearts. You see, Isaiah 1, it, it describes the hearts of the Israelites. It describes them as rebellious. It describes them as ignorant of God, as a sinful nation, as a people laden with iniquity, as children who deal corruptly. They are viewed as people who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, and who were utterly estranged. Because of their sin, rebellion, and hypocrisy, the Lord said that he was weary of bearing their sacrifices, and as a result, he would hide his eyes from them. He would not listen to their prayers. Why? Because their hands were full of blood. Their lives demonstrated no fear of the Lord, no honor of the Lord. Their hearts, they actually did not desire righteousness. Instead, they did a little bit of religious activity and sought to find pleasure in their sin. And what did God call such a people to do in Isaiah 1.16? He called them to repent. He told Israel, he said, to wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And then he says this, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. You see, the Lord had no inherent pleasure and the simple killing of animals and burning them. If he did, he certainly would have at least found some joy or some pleasure in the Israelite sacrifices, even when they were made in the midst of their unrepentant sin. However, that was not the case. The main point of the sacrificial system wasn't for his people to demonstrate their willingness to bring their choice meat before the Lord. The external action of the burnt offering in bringing an animal to be fully consumed by fire 
was meant to signify a heart that was coming before the Lord, acknowledging its sinfulness and repenting before the Lord God. That was the point. And why were such sacrifices made to atone for the sins of the people? Because such sacrifices were truly made by faith. True, God-honoring, God-accepted sacrifices were made trusting in the grace of God and His willingness to pardon them from their sin. Such grace brought about repentance from the hearts of the elect. Such faith pleased the Lord. Such faith honored the Lord. See, friends, this is what God desired for His people in Joshua 8. God desired for His people not to use their confidence before God to presume upon His grace. God didn't desire to give His people confidence so that they would feel freedom in their sin. God desired that His people would experience confident freedom from their sin. God desired that His people would truly taste and truly see that the Lord is good. They they would truly look upon the Lord's goodness and kindness, and in that moment they would desire repentance. You see, God desired that by faithfully bringing their burnt offerings before the Lord, they were steadfastly and confidently trusting in God's provisions to make atonement for their sin. And such confidence that the Lord would make atonement for their sin wasn't meant to drive them deeper into sin, deeper into rebellion, but deeper into repentance. You see, King David, the Bible speaks of King David, as you know, as a man after what? God's own heart. He understood this. After his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote this in, in Psalm 51, 16 through 17. David, he said this, for, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. In other words, the Lord does not delight in mere outward sacrifice. He does not delight in mere outward performance. He doesn't delight in outward religion. And David continues, he says, You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Again, not merely religious activity. David says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, friends, it is such a heart posture that honors the Lord. See, as the Israelites encountered God's grace in bringing them into the land, giving them victory over their enemies, and forgiving them of their sins, they were experiencing a time of corporate repentance on Mount Ebal as they made burnt offerings together there. Friends, Community Bible Church, we, we would be wise. We would be wise to consider these truths and their implications this morning. God's grace in our lives is meant to drive us to ongoing daily repentance before the Lord. I'm not talking about 
pure external action. I'm talking about the type of broken and contrite hearts that Psalm 51 refers to. This is true repentance. We don't merely acknowledge our sin. We repent of it. We hate it. We ask the Lord to truly change us. We seek His transforming power in our lives. Our hearts should actually desire to be like Jesus Christ. Friends, this is repentance. See, repentance isn't just giving a little money to the church. Repentance isn't getting a little more involved in the church. Repentance isn't cussing a little less, drinking a little less, or sleeping with your girlfriend a little less. Repentance isn't finding new ways to get a little bit better at hiding our sin from our spouse, our loved ones, or from our church. True repentance occurs at the level of the heart, at the level of desire. You see, Rosaria Butterfield, she says it this way. She says, if we cannot repent of sin at the root of desire, we aren't repenting according to the Bible's clear guidance. See, true repentance is agreeing with God on what is good and what is to be desired, which is righteousness in Jesus Christ. True repentance is agreeing with God on what is vile and what is to be rejected. Sin and wickedness. The true heartfelt repentance then leads to external action. As our affections change, our actions change. Mere outward change without inward change is not a product of saving faith. There's also no such thing as inward change that doesn't result in outward change. You see, James would call that dead faith, or a non-Christian. You see, when a Christian sins, friends, he doesn't pray that the Lord would just keep him from the consequences of his sin. He doesn't pray that no one will find out about his sin. He doesn't pray that God would just give him peace in the midst of his sin. He doesn't even simply pray that God would just forgive him. Of his sin. He is most concerned that the Lord God would change him, change his desires, change his pleasures, change his affections, change his object of worship from self to the Lord God. He pleads with the Lord to make Jesus his one desire. He earnestly asks God to make him more like Jesus Christ. This, friends, this and nothing short of this is repentance. And know that in the Christian life, repentance is not an add-on to the Christian life. Repentance isn't for super-Christians. Repentance isn't just for elders. Repentance is foundational to our walk with Christ. It is a foundational aspect of saving faith. See, true, confident, saving faith Results in Holy Spirit-empowered, God-honoring repentance. Point two. Godly confidence produces rejoicing. Godly confidence, it produces a rejoicing. See, next we see that the Israelites, they, they made peace offerings 
to the Lord on this altar as well. Joshua 8.31 says that the Israelites made peace offerings to the Lord. This was in obedience to Deuteronomy 27 verse 7 that says, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So what was the purpose of a peace offering? Well, Deuteronomy 27.7 indicates that it was for the purpose of what? Rejoicing. It was an offering of thanksgiving, gratitude, and fellowship over what the Lord had done for his people. See, according to, to Leviticus chapter 3 and Leviticus chapter 7, and I know I'm throwing a ton of verses out here, but they're on the notes, so you can go look at them throughout this week if you'd like. According to Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, the peace offering signified peace and fellowship between God and his covenant people. The person offering the peace offering was displaying gratitude towards the Lord. And, and, and the beautiful thing about this offering is that Mignon would like this. It was actually a communal meal between God and the ones making the offering. See, unlike the burnt offering where the whole, the whole sacrifice was actually consumed by fire, the peace offering would only consume part of the sacrifice as an offering to the Lord, while the other part of the sacrifice was to be eaten by the one offering the sacrifice. Specifically, in Leviticus 3, 3 through 5, it commanded the Israelites to offer the fatty portions of the sacrifice to the Lord. Leviticus 7, 30 through 34, dictated that the breast and the right thigh of the offering was, was to be given to the priest to eat. And Leviticus 7, 15 through 18, allowed for the rest of the peace offering to be eaten by the one offering the sacrifice and his family. See, such an offering, such a meal, it represented fellowship between man and God, as well as fellowship between God's people, man and man. Reconciliation between God and man, and reconciliation between man and man, in light of what the Lord God had done for his people. Isn't this awesome? You see, the social atmosphere of God's people was to be one of rejoicing in what God had done for them. See, God's desire for his people was that his love, his grace, his mercy, providence, presence, guidance, friendship, forbearance, election, adoption, revelation, discipline, and many other displays of, of God's kindness towards his people, it would result in true heartfelt rejoicing among the people of God. That was the product. You see, God's will for his people was not for them to come there and simply offer heartless sacrifices. As we've already discussed at length this morning, his desire was not to receive outward expressions of gratitude with no real inward gratitude. That wasn't God's will. God, God had no interest in seeing a people who were merely religious and dedicated to ritual or dedicated to liturgy or dedicated to practice. God did not desire for his people to be apathetic towards his kindness. He did not find pleasure in hearts that offered sacrifices while having grumbling or ungrateful or complaining hearts. 
The offerings were not meant to signify a superficial peace that only gave lip service to the peace that God really offers, while hearts were actually seeking and longing for additional peace that's out in the world. No, friends, God's desire was for their hearts, their emotions, their affections to be changed and to be moved by His grace. His will for their lives was to truly and deeply worship Him. You see, His command was for for them to willfully and authentically rejoice at His goodness in their lives. And He demanded nothing less than His people finding great gratitude and thanksgiving and deep worship in the person and work of God. That was God's desire for His people. And you know what, friends? This is exactly what we see in the Psalms. This is exactly what we see in the Psalms. In fact, let's look at a few this morning. They're on your sheet, but turn to Psalm 4, verse 11. We're going to flip here, so be ready. Psalm 4, verse 11. It says, Let all who take refuge in you, that is, those who have peace with God, those who take refuge in God, And all those who take refuge in you, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice, friends. Let them ever sing. Sing for joy. And spread your protection over them. Again, this is peace and safety in God. That those who love, what is that? That's an affection. Those who love your name may exalt in you. What's the product of those who love the Lord? What's the product of those who have peace in the Lord? What? What is it? It is exalting. It is singing. It is rejoicing in the Lord. Next, we might consider Psalm 32, 10 through 11. Psalm 32, 10 through 11. It says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. You see, those who are wicked, those who turn from the Lord, they have affections as well. It is sorrow. Many are are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What is their response? Verse 11, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you see this rejoicing? This this isn't even an internal rejoicing. This is an internal reality that rejoices in external action and obedience. Truly, naturally, authentically rejoicing in the Lord God. In light of what he has done. In light of the peace that he has brought. Psalm 33, 1-3, it says this. Shout for joy. Again, and it's not just a shout. We're not just hyping ourselves up. We're not just trying to act excited. We're not just trying to actively raise our hands for, you know, to look like we're more pious than we are. We're not just trying to have, you know, we're not trying to create some false sense of of worship here. Our shouts are rooted in what? Joy. Joy. Joy found where? 
Shout for joy in the Lord. You see, we cannot help but shout and proclaim because of our joy found in the Lord and His kindness and His grace and His goodness towards us. To shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, underline this part, praise befits the upright. Praise befits the upright. You see, praise is proper. Praise is appropriate. Praise is expected of the upright. Dear friends, praise is the most natural response to those who are God's people and who have been given the grace of God. Psalm continues, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. You see, the Lord God, He's, he's worthy of Lindsay's excellent piano playing. He is worthy of, of Dwight's skillful work on the bass. He is worthy of Cameron and Brandon's offerings on the guitar. He is worthy of their best and most skillful offering on their instruments. And our proper response as a congregation in light of His kindness and in light of His glory and in light of His, of his goodness is that we would be a singing church. We'd be a singing church. And we are a church that, that, that exists to, to sing loud. We are a loud singing church in light of God's abundantly loud grace in our lives. We don't mumble. We don't stand there singing half-heartedly like we don't want to be here. We don't stand there lifeless. We don't stand there critically. We don't stand there distracted. We don't stand there self-conscious. You see, worshipful singing doesn't take into account your lack of singing ability, your introverted personality, your masculine pride, or your just pure rebellion to participate in congregational singing. We are commanded, and the most natural response of a Christian who has experienced the grace of God is to sing out loud in light of what God has done. You see, Psalm 34 also says that this, Psalm 34, 1 through 3, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Good seasons, bad seasons, trials and times of ease, seasons of abundance and, and seasons of little. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Then read this. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. You see, the one who has tasted the goodness of God and has seen that he is indeed good isn't simply satisfied in delighting in the Lord alone. Naturally, he calls others to rejoice in the Lord as well. You see, you don't have to tell a person who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good to evangelize. It is the most natural for such a person. 
the natural response to the one who has experienced God's grace and goodness and tasted it and seen it. And it they tell people. They tell people of the goodness of God. See, brothers and sisters, the Bible, it does not have a category for Christians who do not rejoice in the Lord. When Jesus solved our biggest problem through his death on the cross, everything changed for us. We were reconciled to God. Our eternal destiny changed. We were bound for hell until Jesus took God's wrath for us. He is infinitely worthy of our praise and our glory and our adoration and our outward expressions of praise. And, but know this, that God is not simply looking for lip service gratitude. He isn't looking for a, a one-time moment of gratitude and then we move on with our day. Isn't this what we did this week? Yeah, one day dedicated to, to thanksgiving, giving praise, and then the next day, Black Friday, where we think about all we want and we fight others for the best price so that we can keep more of what we have. Friends, if the faithful Israelites could rejoice in the Lord having not seen the risen Christ, how much more should we rejoice? How much more should those of us who are new covenant believers rejoice? How much more should those of us who have the permanent indwelling power of the Holy Spirit rejoice? How much more should those of us who have seen Christ build his church around this globe as he said he would rejoice? How much more should those of us who have never had to slaughter a bull our whole lives to make atonement for our sin rejoice? Dear friends, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The payment of our sin, it has been paid, not by us, but by Christ. If you were in Christ, you are free indeed, and this is worthy of heartfelt, authentic worship. This is why the, this is why the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians 4 verse 4, he can emphatically say this with no, with no caveats. He can say this, rejoice in the Lord always. And you know what? Again, I say rejoice. See, dear Christian, I need not know your current status in life at this moment. I don't need to know your struggles. I don't need to know your trials. I don't need to know anything about your past. I can say this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, no matter the season, we have an infinite number of reasons to rejoice in Jesus Christ again and again and again for all of eternity. Do you find yourself, Christian, with a dull, sad, anxious, angry, and unfulfilled heart. Look to Christ, where all of our hope and all of our joy is found. And as the Holy Spirit, He will give you eyes to see Christ as He truly is. As He does that, dear friend, rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. See, true, confident, saving faith results in authentic, God-honoring rejoicing. And point three, Godly confidence produces a commitment to the Word of God. Godly confidence produces a commitment to the Word of God. See, finally, in this episode found in, 
and Joshua 8, we see a deep commitment to the word of God from the people of Israel. As you look with me at, at Joshua 8, verse 32, where we find that Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. This was done in obedience to Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 through 4. Joshua was to take these large stones and he was to plaster them with plaster. Then he was to write down all the words of the law on these stones for the people of Israel to read. It's important to note that the law at this time of Israel's history, that the law was all of the written word of God that the people had at the time. They didn't have the whole Old Testament like we do at this time. Yet, they were committed to all of it. All of it. Every dot, every tittle, every last word. Joshua didn't skip over the parts he didn't like. He didn't just offer the people his favorite parts of the law. He didn't just hover over the parts of the law that were his biggest soapbox issues, he made sure to present the whole counsel of the word of the living God to those that he led. And friends, this is the job of God's shepherds. This is the job. To feed the sheep the whole counsel of God. To open the Bible and to teach from Genesis to Revelation. God's faithful shepherds don't skip over the parts of the Bible that are tough to understand. They don't avoid texts that are culturally unacceptable. They don't shrink back because the text will offend influential members of their congregation. They aren't concerned with how doctrine might affect attendance. They aren't concerned how their teaching might hurt giving. No, their their primary concern isn't the budget of their church, but the holiness of the church. They know that the holiness of the church is in direct proportion to how clearly they see Jesus Christ in the scriptures. They understand this, that all of the Bible is about God's redemptive plan in Christ Jesus. All of it. The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. Friends, members of Community Bible Church, if you didn't know this, this is why we as a church are committed to preaching verse by verse through different books of the Bible. Why? Because it is all essential. Second Timothy, you know this passage, Second Timothy 3, 26 through 27, it says this, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hear me, Christian. Every word is breathed out by God. Every God-breathed word is profitable. Every God-breathed word 
teaches us. Every word reproves us. Every word corrects us. Every word trains us in righteousness. Every word completes us and equips us for every good work. And we must understand that only the word of God can do this. The wisdom of man cannot do this. Who cares what I have to say? It's a great place for an amen. Who cares what Matt has to say or, or Doug or Stephen or, or anyone else who enters this pool? Who cares what we have to say? We're, we're seeking in this pulpit to ask, what does God have to say? Because only the word of God can change our hearts. Only the word of God can change us. And friends, there are far too many Christian pastors and leaders who are afraid of the Bible in our culture. They would claim to believe that all Scripture is inspired. They would claim that all Scripture is authoritative. They would claim that the Bible is inerrant. And their church statement of faith would commit to authority and inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God. Yet, they do not teach all of God's Word. They don't give the Word of God to their people straight up. They splice it and they, and they edit it to make it more palatable for carnal men. They may not teach outright error, yet they teach to the lowest common denominator so that they will not be accused of heresy. Too often they say nothing of consequence, nothing of meaning. They will teach in such a way that, uh, that appeals both to the culture and self-professing Christians alike. Friend, I don't care how much you might profess to believe in the authority of God's word. If you don't teach the full counsel of God's word, you don't actually believe in the authority of God's word. And you aren't that committed to scripture. I don't say that. I genuinely mean this. I don't say that to give us a pat on the back. I say that with a deep sense of fear and trembling. You see, there comes a day, Christians, where it will increasingly cost us to teach, believe, and obey the word of God in this country. And the test will not just be for elders and pastors, but for mothers and grandmothers and students alike. Will we be, Community Bible Church, will we be a church that holds fast to the word of God 10 years from now? Friend, if we cannot hold fast to the word of God today, what makes us think that we will hold fast to it in the future? See, I've seen far too many self-professing Christians turn away from the clear teaching and commands of Scripture when they enter into seasons of trials. Many friends. Suddenly their circumstances change the way they view the Bible. The culture changes and they change the way they view the Bible. I don't say this to point fingers. I say this, hear me, friends, family, 
members of Community Bible Church, I say this so that we would guard against this. Hear me, we, we must be a church that is deeply, deeply, deeply committed to the Word of God. Every member, every family, young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, influential, un, uninfluential, mature, new believer, elder, non-elder, we all need the Word of God. We must all be committed to the word of God. See, this this was deeply important to the heart of God and to the heart of Joshua. Joshua 8.33 tells us that every single Israelite gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. See, half of the nation gathered in in front of Mount Gerizim. The other half of the nation, they they gathered on Mount Ebal. Now, ancient readers... They would have understood this, even though the text doesn't say it. They would have understood that the spot between Ebal and, and, and Gerizim was, was the city of Shechem. This was the spot where the Lord first made his covenant with Abraham. And there he built an, alf, an, an altar to the Lord and, and he worshiped the Lord there. It was also the city where later in Genesis where Jacob dwelled. See, Shechem is now, at this point in Joshua, it is where the Israelites are worshiping and renewing their commitment to the covenant many generations later. In fact, verse 34 tells us that as the nation gathered together, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. See, now now, now Joshua read the whole law. He read the whole law. He read every bit of it. In fact, verse 35 points out that there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. Would have taken a long time. Do you think my sermons are long? Yet, the text specifically points out that he read the blessings and the curses. Now, now this this is important because... This was again in direct obedience to God's commands to the Israelites in in Deuteronomy 27 verse 9 all the way through Deuteronomy 28, 68. I'm I'm not going to read all of that, but but, but I, I would encourage you this week to read that. Look how severe the curses are. Look how glorious the blessings are. You see, there the Lord commanded for the nation to be divided into different tribes and placed onto Mount Ebal and to Mount Gerizim as we saw in Joshua chapter 8. Once there, Israel was to read aloud the blessings and curses that went along with the law. If they obeyed, they would live. They would prosper. They would experience prosperity. They would experience health. They would experience military might. They would experience fruitfulness. Most importantly, God would be with them. Should they disobey, they would be cursed. They would die. They they would experience torment, suffering, military defeat. And the Lord would reject them. See, the blessings of obedience were incredible. The curses of disobedience were tragic. What I want us to take away from this is that the word of God was not something simply to be heard or intellectually comprehended. 
God's intent for his people is that they would obey the word of God. They would take his word to heart and live according to his word. That's his will. Said differently, if God's people simply heard the word of God and intellectually understood it and simply thought, wow, that's really interesting. I never knew that. I never saw that. But had no desire to obey his word, the consequences were devastating. See, God's desire for his people was for them to demonstrate his holiness by living distinct lives in the land according to his word. Anything less, friends, would result in the judgment of God. Now, of course, we know that no Israelite ever fully obeyed the whole law except for one. Who? Jesus. He alone perfectly fulfilled God's perfect law for us. And when we trust in his atoning work on the cross, his righteous fulfillment of the law is attributed to us. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. And God sees us in Christ as law keepers because of who? Because of Jesus. In spite of our disobedience and because of God's grace, we only receive blessings through Jesus Christ. You see, that blessing is life in and with Jesus Christ forever. It's not money. It's not health. It's not a long earthly life. It's not a great marriage. It's not great children. <laughs> that stuff pales in comparison to what we get. When we are in Christ, the blessing is Christ forever. And we will never ever stand to receive the wrath of God. We will never ever ever stand condemned. Yet, God commands us today, dear friends, to obey his word. He does. In fact, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, in part, is to what? Obey all that Jesus commanded. Not, not some of it, all of it. I mean, is that not what the Great Commission says in Matthew 28? We don't, we, we don't obey in order to be blessed. We obey because in Christ we are already infinitely blessed. You see, it is the desire of those who have been saved by Jesus Christ to joyfully bow the knee to King Jesus and walk in newness of life. And this is true of all true Christians. You see, we, we put sin to death because Jesus commands us and equips us to put sin to death. We make disciples of all nations because Jesus said he would build his church. We forgive others because Jesus has forgiven us. We open our homes to Christian hospitality because Jesus has adopted us into his family. We teach our children the word of God because Jesus has a heart for children to know him. We love our wives because Jesus loves his. Children obey their parents because Jesus obeyed the Father. Finally, I want us to see that this was the call for every member of Israel. This wasn't just a call for the men to know the word, but the whole nation. No one 
was left behind. Each one needed to hear the words of life. If the nation was going to prosper, they all needed theology. They all needed the word of God. Men, women, children, sojourners, they were all expected to know the word and obey if they were going to be a part of God's people. This is true of Christ's church as well. In fact, what we've talked about today, it is basically the Christian life in a nutshell. I'm not saying there's not more to add. I'm just saying you're getting the, you're getting the big rocks here. If you are a Christian, you are called to give your whole life as a daily sacrifice to Christ Jesus. As Brandon already read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Every minute of every day belongs to Jesus. Every thought belongs to Jesus. Every affection belongs to Jesus. Every ambition belongs to Jesus. Every desire belongs to Jesus. As we study the word of God and and the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, we are to respond in repentance. We are called to turn from our wicked ways, friends, and to follow Jesus. We are to confess our sin to him, knowing that we already have an advocate before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we study the word of God and the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth of God's word in such a way that Christ is magnified, we are called to rejoice. We are called to humble ourselves before the Lord and to make much of him. We are called to worship him, love him, and proclaim his name to the nations. We are called to joyfully proclaim the truth of the gospel to our neighbors. This is what Christians do. Friends, this is the Christian life. You're a Christian. This is what you signed up for. It really is that basic. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, understand this. This is God's will for your life. Is that God's will? This is God's will for your life. If you come... Hear me, if you come and partake of the Lord's Supper, this should be characteristic of your life. I have no reason to see why you would desire to take the Lord's Supper and this not be characteristic of your life. Your children and your spouse should see this in you. Children, your parents, children, children, Your parents and your siblings should see this in you. You're a Christian. Elders, this should be true of each of you. We are called to be a repenting people, a rejoicing people, and a people who are deeply committed to bringing our lives in conformity to the word of God daily. Friends, may we not presume on the grace of God. May we walk in a way that truly honors and brings glory to our King in light of what He's done. Amen.